Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, Georgetown University African American Studies and Performing Arts Professor Soyika Diggs Colbert talks about her book, Radical Vision, a biography of Lorraine Hansberry, published by Yale University Press in April 2021. This biography dives into the life, the art, and the political activism of writer Lorraine Hansberry. In 1959, Hansberry became the first Black woman to have her play, A Raisin in the Sun, produced and celebrated on Broadway. Soika Colbert was interviewed by fellow biographer and bio member Kevin Magruder. Welcome. So, Wika Diggs Colbert, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your book. It is a fascinating read. And wondered if we could start out with you discussing how this biography differs from others that have been done on Lorraine Hansberry. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about the book. And I'm excited that there's so much interest in Hansberry that there are multiple biographies that people can read at this time. So one of the two ways that my book makes an intervention is that there's a great deal from Hansberry's archive that I quote and pieces that were never published that I reference in the book. So one of the contributions that I hope I'm making is not only drawing attention to the vastness of her writing, but also the careful documentation of the archival material that I used for other scholars to be able to explore Hansberry in their own right. The other way that I think the book contributes uniquely to um, biographies on Hansberry is that it really focuses on how her work as a playwright contributed to and advanced her work as an activist, a spokesperson, and an intellectual, and how all those identities were intertwined. Mm -hmm. The title, Radical Vision, you make the argument that she was much more radical than she has been portrayed. Can you talk about what makes her a radical? Hansberry was a radical in the sense that she believed in a Black radical tradition that is rooted in Marxism. And so she was really invested in the idea of social transformation through the intertwining of race struggle as well as class-based struggle. She also, very early on, was thinking in terms that we would now call Black feminist intersectionality. And so she was thinking about her own identity as she calls herself um, a lesbian in a heterosexual marriage. She was thinking about Black internationalism in really important ways well before the Black power movement. And so all of that work emerges in her most well-known play, A Raisin in the Sun, but also more explicitly in her latter plays. And by all that work, I mean her interest in Black internationalism, her questions around gender and sexuality, and how that informs our understanding of Blackness. And so Hansberry is both anticipating what we might now call third wave feminism, 
and the radicalism of third wave feminism, as well as how we think of Black power and, of course, leftist movements that emerged in the popular front in the 30s and 40s, and then seemed to, although did not, diminish their impact, I would argue, in the 50s and 60s. I think that they were less visible, but I think Hansberry is an example of the ongoing power of the popular front. <laughs> and what you're describing, I think, will probably be new to a lot of readers. And I think in this book, you explain how the Raisin in the Sun, while it brings her great visibility, it creates a perception that was not of her making. Can you describe how that play sets the stage for an image of her that really does not match what you found in the archives? Absolutely. So one of the fascinating parts about writing this book is that Hansberry was writing in leftist, Marxist, African-American, Black periodicals from the time she moved to New York in early 1950 until A Raisin in the Sun is produced in 1959. And so there's this whole body of published work that Hansberry produces well before Raisin in the Sun. But Raisin in the Sun is her most popular work. It's produced on Broadway. It's reviewed in um, major periodicals. And there are all these interviews that follow. And so it's always makes me chuckle when reporters say things like, oh, you're a housewife that wrote a play. Or, you know, you just decided one day to get up and write a play because she had written so much before she wrote A Raisin in the Sun. It's not her first play even. But no one seems to be aware of her other writing. All of her writing that was published prior to A Raisin in the Sun, if it was today, would be easily searchable via the internet. But because this work was not easily searchable, it seems reporters weren't aware of it or didn't mention it. And so the perception is that A Raisin in the Sun is Hansberry's first work, which it's not. The perception is that she's a housewife when she's much more than that. And her youth and physical beauty also paint this picture of her that doesn't align with the fact that she's been actively engaged in the civil rights movement really her whole life, but definitely in earnest when she moves to New York City. And one of those people who was interviewing her, you point out, was Mike Wallace to later be with 60 Minutes. And that example affirms what you're saying and, and her saying one thing, but him hearing something else. Absolutely. So the audio of Hansberry's interview with Mike Wallace is available. And I usually play it for my students because it's fascinating to listen to her repeatedly correcting him and him not being able to receive what she's saying. There's also this tradition you see in the archive of Hansberry writing letters to editors when they misinterpret or misunderstand something she said. Sometimes they print the responses, sometimes they don't. But she's constantly trying to set the record straight, so to speak. But the national public is not willing to see her in the radical way that I think that her work really reflects. Um, just continuing along that separation between who she is and who the press seems to want her to be, she is a first in terms of Black women having a play on Broadway, but the press possibly could have accepted her for who she was. But why do you think they decide who she is, which is so different from what she's saying. I think there's a couple reasons. So one of the other interesting aspects of the Mike Wallace interview that comes up at the end is that he uses her as a foil 
to Malcolm X. And I think that the press was establishing this distinction between different ways of advocating for civil rights between 1954 and 1965. And so Hansberry becomes emblematic of a good Black activist, quote unquote, one that we shouldn't be afraid of, one that wants nothing more than just access to the American dream, who wants to be able to have, you know, education and home ownership. This is just things that we all, quote unquote, want versus Black folks who are advocating for self-determination and for Mm self-defense. Now, mind you, Hansberry is advocating for self-determination and self-defense too, but the fullness of the worldview that Hansberry has around Black emancipation and, you know, the, the ongoing fight for Black freedom doesn't allow for that multiplicity, at least not in the popular U.S. press. And so I think she becomes a liberal darling, much in the way that Baldwin is at parts of his career. And then the other piece is, I argue, or Raisin in the Sun, is successful because it does tap into this moment in U.S. dramatic history where the realist kitchen sink drama is very popular. And so her play is about a family and it is about home ownership, but it also is about segregation and black internationalism and feminism. But the focus has not been on the latter, it's been on the former. Right. And I thought that there's an image that you bring in at the beginning with the aftermath of her father filing that restrictive covenant case and how the family has to be on guard with her mother with a pistol. And you later on, you talk about Harriet Tubman, that same image. And I thought it really convincingly made the case of somebody coming from that background is not going to just leave that behind. (laughs) Right. Hansberry's father filed a court case in Chicago that became well-known in legal circles because it was ultimately argued before the Supreme Court, Hansberry v. Lee. And it was an early case against restrictive housing covenants or housing discrimination. And Hansberry's father ultimately won the battle but lost the, the war where the Supreme Court found that he was able to purchase his home in that neighborhood, but that racially restrictive housing covenants were not illegal in general. And that's a well-known history of Hansberry and Raised in the Sun. Many people have written about how that case inspires Hansberry to write the play. All of that is true. What is less known is that while her father, Carl Augustus Hansberry, was off in Washington, D.C., fighting for racial justice, as you said, her mother was at home protecting the family with a gun because their neighbors had jeered at them, thrown a rock through the window, had shown violence against the family, both verbally and physically. So Hansberry learned very early on the full spectrum of fighting for Black freedom, uh, the limitations of the courts, the possibilities of the courts, as well as the ideas around self-defense. And she used all of those means of freedom fighting in her work. You also describe that Raisin in the Sun has an alternative ending. So for those who don't know the play, you should know it. It's an amazing play. One of the arcs of the play is about the family moving from the south side of Chicago in their very cramped apartment to a home that the mother in the play purchases. In the published version of the play and in the Broadway produced version of the play, it ends with the family leaving their apartment, right? And so they're on their way to the new home. The movers have come and taken all of their things and they're leaving. We don't know what's going to happen once they move. But in one version of the play, Hansberry has them in the new home And just as with her childhood, 
there's a scene of them being harassed and yelled at outside and the family preparing for um, what will happen next. What I think is important is that the ending of the play that was published and that is produced doesn't foreclose that other ending, right? So it's still possible that will happen when they move. And she makes this very clear in her interviews with with Studs Terkel as well as Mike Wallace, that the youngers, the, the family in the play, them finding peace once they move isn't the point. The point is that she says, Walter Lee, the main, one of the main characters in the play, The Son, makes a choice, an affirmative choice that moves the family forward. And so I think that Hansberry would perceive her father's victory in the courts as a victory, even though it didn't achieve ultimately what he wanted. I think that she saw it as an important stepping point in the fight for Black freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were mentioning all the writing she was doing before Raising in the Sun. And one of the things I found particularly interesting is I knew that she was a lesbian. I did not realize how public might not be the word, but she was very involved. Well, she described herself in correspondence as heterosexually married lesbian. Mm-hmm. So, so it's like she's out to herself, if not you know, to everybody else. But she is corresponding with the latter, the, the lesbian publication she's publishing under a pseudonym. Can you talk about that part of her writing? And- so yeah, so Hansberry wrote two well-known now because they've been discussed in uh, mainstream press, letters to the latter that she signs with initials. The letters, to my mind, are important as a part of Hansberry's legacy because in one of them, she makes the case that what limits women's sexual freedom is their economic instability. And this is, of course, the 1950s. So I think that's an important context for us to understand. It's the height of the marriage rate in the United States. Hansberry is making the case that most women require coupling in order to survive economically. And that obviously, you know, Queer coupling is not available in the same ways. There's all types of harassment and queer baiting and the lavender scare is ongoing. So it's not tenable in the same ways in a public way um, that heterosexual marriage is. And it's also important to me that Hansberry brings up race and class in these letters. But she also wrote several short stories that were published um, and that are available in the archive and that I write about and quote from. And so Hansberry was thinking actively about her sexual identity at the same time that she was writing A Raisin in the Sun. So to my mind, it's fascinating to consider the multiple inputs that Hansberry was was working through simultaneously. So she writes the letters to the latter in the same year that she's writing the first draft of A Raisin in the Sun. Interesting. A major point that you make in this book is it's probably only by looking at her unpublished work or unproduced work that we really get the full picture of who she was. And a lot of these works I had not heard of. Can you talk about that work and the drinking gourd and Mm -hmm. and the significance of that, what we learned about her from those things? Yes. For everyone in the sound of my voice, (laughs) someone should produce the drinking gourd. It's a brilliant piece of writing. So Hansberry has several plays that have been published, but are less well-known than A Raisin in the Sun. 
and some of which, including the drinking gourd, have never been produced. So they've been published, but they've never been produced. So one of the interventions I try to make is to show how Hansberry's early writing, her writing in The Ladder, her writing in Freedom, which was a journal that Paul Robeson founded, many of her ideas that she's cultivating in this early writing from 1950 to 1957 anticipates what she writes in her most well-known work, her plays. And so there's this really strong theme of Black internationalism that emerges in her writing for freedom that we see reflected in her last play, Le Blanc, which is about a independence movement in Africa. Um, Again, we see some of the questions around queerness and sexuality, both in Sign and Sidney Brustein's window, as well as in Le Blanc. The Drinking Gourd is a screenplay that Hansberry writes right after she finishes Raise It in the Sun. And so it's commissioned in an interview, she says, it's one of the few times where I was paid to write something and then it was put in a drawer. So it was never produced. But what is most useful to me, particularly as a literary scholar, but just as a student of history more generally, is that Hansberry gives us an alternative to what has emerged in, I think, more recent Black cinematic representations of slavery. She gives an alternative to the very visceral violence and the spectacle that we see in terms of torture of Black folks in films about slavery. And so there's a scene in the screenplay where the main character, one of the main characters, eyes are gouged out because he has learned to read. And instead of having the camera focus on this scene of horrible violence, Hansberry instead directs that the camera should follow the overseer as he rides away. And that the screams of Hannibal, the enslaved person who's mutilated, should be heard in the background. And so Hansberry attaches the violence to this white man's body as opposed to the black body, which to me is an important shift and how we think about where the violence of slavery sits. Mm-hmm. Why wasn't that produced? It's not clear why it wasn't aired. It was commissioned as a set of texts around the centennial. And she says that the producers just simply tell her that they decided not to move forward with the project. So I'm not sure why, but I do think that Hansberry does a really good job in the play of humanizing both the white and the black characters and trying to give us a sense of the way that slavery dehumanizes people more generally. Can you talk about her later work? Because by that Mm -hmm. time she's sick, but she's working through that as well. Hansberry dies from cancer. She is working on several plays while she's sick and, you know, as she's been hospitalized and is in and out of hospitals. One is Sign and Sidney Brustein's Window, which is the last play that's produced while she's alive. She's in a hospital bed in New York while the play is being produced on Broadway. And that play depicts the Greenwich Village Bohemian scene that was the context of her community when she was living in New York City. And it depicts this question around whether the main characters who are all white, except for one character is a black character, um, struggling with this idea of how to continue to fight against injustice when it seems like everything is crumbling around them. And so in the play, Hansberry really takes up the question of despair that seems to have, as she says, invaded the American theater scene. And she also takes up the idea of 
existentialism and absurdism, which for Hansberry, a sign of that are two plays. One is Waiting for Godot, which is a very well-known play. And another one is The Blacks, A Clown Show by the artist Jean Genet. And so Hansberry's play Le Blanc is a direct response to Genet's The Blacks, The Blacks, A Clown Show. So Hansberry um, has signed Sydney Brewstein's window produced. It has mixed reviews. Again, the critics are confused as to why this Black woman is writing this play about these white characters. But if you look at the theater world and the art scene for Hansberry in the 1950s and 60s, she's the only Black woman. So it makes sense as to why that's one of the contexts in which she's working. And then another context in which she's working, and she writes about this in Le Blanc, is thinking about Black freedom movements for global Black freedom. She's also working on a play about Toussaint Louverture, which there's this lovely video and scene reading of that play. She's working on it for a while and still working on it when she dies. She doesn't complete that play, but she does leave full drafts of Sign as well as Le Blanc in the archive. When you think of her legacy, particularly with what you're presenting in this book, how would you like readers to understand her? When I started writing this book, I never anticipated, nor I think any of us did, that we would have the year that was 2020 between the ongoing pandemic, the death of George Floyd, racial uprisings, the response to anti-Black violence. I never anticipated that would be our context for that year. But for me, at least, having the opportunity to engage Hansberry's archive was a gift because it gave me an example of someone fighting for justice among multiple crises, which is the world that we're currently inhabiting. And so Hansberry was thinking about apocalypse. You see this in her play, What Use Are Flowers. She was thinking about anti-Black violence. You see this across her body of work. She was thinking about existentialist questions about life and death, about why life is worth living. Um, she was thinking about war. She has a speech that I opened the book with in the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And so Hansberry was actively engaged in asking and answering questions about the multiple crises that plagued her world. And her response always was, we cannot despair and, and we don't necessarily even need to be hopeful, but we need to keep our mind on freedom. And Hansberry understood her legacy as tied to slave insurrections in the 18th and 19th centuries to her present day, that when she was thinking about the practice of freedom, it was linked to a long history of practices for freedom. And I think that that's also why it's important for me to call attention to her play, A Drinking Gourd, and to her work on Toussaint, because she was thinking about slavery and its legacies, both in the U.S. and in Haiti or in an international context. So I would say that Hansberry and her archive leaves us instructions for living that might enable us to navigate a world that seems overwhelming at times, that seems impossible at times, um, that makes one question what you can do to respond to what seems like a crumbling world. And she does it while for most of her, later of her adult life, she's experiencing her own medical crises. So even as she's dealing with her own mortality, she's advocating for this work. There's this touching moment um, in one of her journals where she's talking about the seduction of comfort and how much pain she's in because she's in the hospital. And she's going on about how dreadful it is to be suffering. She doesn't know she's dying of cancer, but to be, to be so sick. 
And at the end, she says, when I get out of here, I'm going to go to the South and see what kind of um, revolutionary I actually am. And so even as she's laying in her hospital bed, her desire is to be on the front lines of the freedom movements. You mentioned in the book why there is a Lorraine Hansberry archive and why it's so extensive. Can you talk about that and where it is and how accessible it is? Lorraine Hansberry left her papers to her then ex-husband, Robert Nimrov. It wasn't until after Hansberry died that anyone knew that they were divorced, but Hansberry leaves the curation of her papers to her ex-husband at the time, Robert Nimrov. And he actively engages in a project of not only organizing her papers, but also collecting letters and other correspondence from people that she had relationships with. And so in the archive, you'll find not only Hansberry's writing, but you'll also find letters that were sent to Hansberry from well-known figures. The archive is now at the Schomburg Center for Research and Culture, which is the Harlem branch of the New York Public Library. So anyone who's engaging in a research project can make an appointment to look at the papers at the archive. I'm grateful to the Lorraine Hansberry Literary Trust, which still has copyright over her papers and her unpublished work for allowing me to quote from the unpublished parts of her archive. I was overwhelmed with the volume of unpublished work that Hansberry has. And so again, given the small amount proportionally of work that's published, I think most people might be surprised at the volume of her archive, um, but it's, it's quite extensive. And the other um, part that I think is worth noting is that there still are parts where you need to seek permission to view parts of her archive. And again, for our bio listeners, there is also video and audio recording of Hansberry that's being processed by the New York Public Library that's not currently available. And so I'm waiting with bated breath for that material to become available to the public. And I, I hope that our listeners will engage with it actively once it is. And, and was that literary trust created by the Nemroth descendants? So yes, yeah, so Robert Nemroth created the trust and then the trust passed to his second wife who then passed the trust to its current executor, her daughter, Joy Grisham Nimroff. And so um, Joy is the current executor of the trust. That's so valuable to have a treasure trove and have it survive and be protected and accessible. And you see a lot of the imprint of that stewardship. So I mentioned earlier that folks can hear recordings of Hansberry um, in interviews that have been collected by the trust. And so Rather than going online or elsewhere and finding an interview here, an interview there, there's a um, compiling of all the interviews that Hansberry gave in one place that people can listen to. And you see the paper trail and the trust of all these letters that Robert Nimrod wrote to folks to get permission to compile the, the CDs, for example. And so there's a lot of curatorial work that went into creating this really comprehensive um, body of Hansberry's work. Oh, I will say one more thing about the archive. Sorry, I'm an archive nerd. So shout out to former Schomburg archivist, Stephen Fullwood. I would not have been able to write this book without him. And he told me that Hansberry co-wrote a pageant 
with Alice Childress, also a famous Black playwright, which is in Childress's papers. And so you need to go look at the friends of the person's archives as well to find things. Childress's papers are also at the Schomburg. And so I had access to that pageant thanks to Stephen just telling me to go look there. So be Mm -hmm. friends with the archivists and be kind to them because they have all the insights. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Georgetown University professor and author Soyika Diggs-Colbert speaking with bio member Kevin Magruder about her book, Radical Vision, a biography of Lorraine Hansberry, published by Yale University Press in April 2021. We recorded this interview via Zoom on July 27th of this year. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a great day.